You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the written Word of God. I thank you that we can put our total trust and confidence in it. And Lord, we can lean upon it. We can look to it for guidance and instruction, for wisdom and revelation. And Father, I'm asking for your help today to communicate exactly what you would have me to communicate. I want your will to be done in this service and in this sermon in particular. And Father, I believe that my thoughts will be your thoughts. My words will be your words. And Father, I pray for every single person, not only physically here today, those that might hear this message on our podcast, whatever the case might be, Lord, that you would anoint every hearing ear to be able to receive and every heart will be receptive to hear what you have to say to us. And we thank you for it and praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is week number four in our series called Jesus the Healer. How many of you know Jesus is a healer? Amen. Well, let's look at our foundation scripture found in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Again, give you a little bit of reference. This is a uh, message that uh, Peter, rather, was ministering at at Cornelius' house. These were the first Gentiles that were ministered salvation to, ministered the gospel to. So Peter was preaching in the house and... He summarized Jesus' entire ministry this way. He talked about how he was crucified and dead, buried, and resurrected. And then he summarized it all by saying this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So a couple of things we've been mentioning every week. Notice Peter said that Jesus went about doing good, and he said he was healing, so healing is good. I said healing is a good thing. And then notice that uh, Peter also mentioned everybody that was in need of healing was being oppressed by the devil, not God. Okay? So Jesus, and by the way, God was the one that was doing the anointing to send him out to heal. So God's heart was being displayed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we studied in the first couple of weeks of this series, we found out that uh, it is the will of God for people to be well and to be healed. And we saw that perfectly exemplified in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, You still believe Jesus walked out the will of God perfectly, that he acted out the will of God perfectly. So, uh, you know, i believe that if you want to know what the will of God is in a certain situation, look at the ministry of Jesus, and you'll be able to find out the heart of the Father. I want to ask you a question just to, uh, just to do a little poll before we get into this. How many of you use uh, an app on your phone as a means for a GPS? Okay. How many of you use Google Maps? How many of you use Apple Maps? Okay. How many of you use Waze? Anybody use Waze in here? W-A-Z-E? Okay. Not too many. Uh, I use Waze every now and then. It's, it's actually owned by Google now, but um, Waze is a little bit different from, say, Google Maps or Apple Maps in the sense of it's almost annoying a little bit if you're out on the interstate. Uh, and here's why, because they tell you, the, the lady, whoever you have set up to, to do the talking on the app, tells you about everything. So it tells you if there's a car parked on the side of the road. It tells you if there's a policeman ahead with radar. It tells you everything. And, and so you almost get annoyed with it because, you know, if you, especially if you're trying to listen to music or something through your phone, she's all the time interrupting. And, and then, you know, the other thing that, that it, I guess is good for is she likes to tell you about when there's debris in the road Or if there's stuff going on, you know how trucks, those big trucks are always losing part of a tire or something like that, you know, and so she's all the time telling you about things like that. And and, um, the reason I bring that up is, you know, as we're talking about divine healing in the Word of God, 
you'll find that, that the road to divine healing is very often littered with obstacles. And so just like that Waze app, what we're endeavoring to do in this series is to bring up some roadblocks that the devil is going to use to try and hinder you from being able to receive from the Lord, to be able to receive your healing. So what we want to do today is we want to address a huge obstacle that many people have where receiving healing is concerned, okay? Now, I, when I am, I am studying and preparing a message, if I uh, give or use material from somebody else, I always like to make a reference to that. So let me do that first off. Uh, you know, my policy is I'll do it about three times. The fourth time, the material's mine. And so I'll give you credit for it three times. I'm just kidding. No, but a lot of the material that we, we are going to talk about today comes from this book right here. It is called The Permissive Sense, Hints and Helps to Bible Interpretation by Troy Edwards. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's available on Amazon. This isn't a commercial for Amazon, but it is easier. You can get it in the Kindle app or you can download the hard copy if you would like. He has a couple of other books that are along this same line. But again, I use some of the material from his book, so I just want to give credit where credit is due. All right? Now that all the, that's over with and said and done, let's, let's get into this. And if you're taking notes, write this down. The foundation of all faith in the Bible is really based on God's character and our understanding of it. Your faith in God is really based on what you understand God's character to be. You know, for instance, if, if we believed in, in our belief system, in our Christian, Judeo-Christian belief system, if we believe that God is an angry God that has to be appeased, you know, with all kinds of sacrifices and that type of thing, uh, you know, that would be indicative of his character and so, therefore, our belief system revolves around what his character is like. Now, we know God's not like that. Thank God Jesus paid the price, and so we don't have to offer any sacrifices except for our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the Bible says we offer up our worship as a sacrifice. But aren't you glad that we don't all have to get on a plane, go to Jerusalem once a year, and offer sacrifices in Jerusalem? Jesus did that for us. He paid the price for us. But my point is this, that your faith in God and in his, even his written word is based on your understanding of what God's character is like. What is God like? Okay. So what, what has happened is over the last 2,000 years, the enemy has gotten involved and done everything that he possibly can to taint our understanding of God's character. What is God really like? Because as I mentioned to you, what we're going to attempt to do, and by the way, there's no way I can exhaust this in, in a short sermon today. Really, I could spend probably a month or two talking about this, presenting material to you, but I just want you to receive some highlights today because I want you, your understanding uh, to increase of these things, all right? So, how many of you know of someone that might have experienced some type of loss in their life, and because of that loss, they blame God, okay? I think some of us, in, and maybe we have been guilty in some respect, and you know, maybe we might not verbalize it, but deep in our heart, we're mad at God because, again, our, our understanding of His character is flawed, and so we don't understand why certain things happened, and so we've, we've been told God is behind all of that, and so that, uh, you know, it, 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 inwardly in our heart, we're, we're angry at God because certain things happened. Well, write this down, please. Really, the bottom line is people are not angry at God. They're angry at a false representation of God. If you're mad at God today, you're really not mad at God. You're mad at what you were told God is like. And it is a big misrepresentation of God. 
And this isn't something that's recent. It's gone on really since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, actually, it's gone on thousands of years because if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, people's understanding of God uh, was being misconstrued even way back then. So if you're mad at God today, you're really not mad at God. You're mad at your understanding of who God is. And what I want to endeavor to do is to help you understand who God is better today. So maybe uh, if you are angry at God, you'll be able to deal with that and be able to move on uh, in your relationship with the Lord. And, and what's happened is too often theologians attributed Satan's works to God and have led many people to hate the wrong person. Uh, one can easily understand why the enemy would seek to integrate these wrong theological ideas into the church. Because, it, you know, and, and we see it sometimes in our culture today, it's, it's thinking such as this that causes agnostics and atheists to hate God. And, it, you know, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does really to be a Christian if you think about it. You know, there's too much evidence proving that God exists. It takes, it's harder work to believe there is no God than to really look around you and see that God does exist. So doctrines that denigrate God's character are responsible, listen, and this is what the sad thing about all of this, doctrines that have been brought into the church that denigrate God's character are responsible uh, for more lost souls and passive believers than anything else. I know people or know of people that turn their back on God and walked away from him because of a misunderstanding of his character. And, and so, uh, you know, God forbid, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I don't know if they stepped out into eternity with a relationship with the Lord or not. And then there uh, is a whole group of believers that are just like, and this is where this, um, well, let me ask you this, okay? How many of you have ever heard the statement, well, you know, God's in control, and so the implication when we're told that is that, yes, he's in control and everything happens because he wants it to happen. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever the case might be. And uh, I want to submit to you today that absolutely is not the truth. And I didn't include this in your notes, but just remember this. God is in control of what you give him control of. Okay. Now, we're going to talk more about this because it sounds like I'm minimizing God, and I'm not. God is the one in his sovereignty that chose to limit his involvement in humanity and give humanity the right of free choice, all right? Now, so this kind of misunderstanding causes people to lean one way or another. So let's look at this. The first one is, it, it, it causes people to question whether the Bible is accurate. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I remember, and I might have mentioned this to you, but I was told this early on years and years and years ago. You can't believe the Bible because it's so full of contradictions, you know, that there's, there's just so much confusion in here, so you really can't believe it. And, and so, therefore, I question whether it was divinely inspired or not. And so that's one extreme that this thinking will lead you to is that you begin to question the divine inspiration or infallibility of the Scriptures. The other one, the other in, uh, understanding is this, since I can't understand it, I'll just throw out the Old Testament altogether and only base what I believe on the New Testament. You might have known somebody that was like that or, or known somebody or maybe you have done this yourself where you kind of shied away from the Old Testament because you could not reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. Well, I've got news for you. He's the same God. We don't serve two gods. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We serve the same God and he does not have multiple personalities. He's not schizophrenic. All right? Are you listening to me? Okay, so what happens is people lean one way or another. And what I did is I took two prominent theological ideas that 
were introduced into the church in about the second or third century, that, and I just basically modernized what they were saying. There was a, a group of believers that, that uh, you know, just after a while began to question, is the Bible what we know is the Bible? And what they knew as the Bible, is it really divinely inspired? Or there was a whole group of believers that said, you know what, we believe in Jesus, we believe in what he did in the death, burial, and resurrection of the cross, and so forth and so on. But, and we can't reconcile that with the Old Testament, so we'll just throw out the Old Testament, and we're just not going to have anything to do with it. Well, neither one is a good option. There is a better Option. So the better option is what we want to look at today, okay? So here's what I want to do is I want to give you some things, and I did include these in your notes. I didn't make blanks out of them. I just provided you with the information so that you could begin to understand that. So let's look at some things that we need to remember about the Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament, okay? So here we go. First of all, you need to understand the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, is a Hebrew book. It wasn't written in America. It wasn't written in Europe. It is an ancient Hebrew book. All right? Now, here's the second thing. The Hebrew people were an ancient Eastern Oriental culture whose language and understanding of life was quite different than modern-day Western society. And we forget that. We think that, um, let me use a, a great example, okay? And I, I'm not trying to make a political statement with this. I'm just stating fact. It's, it's this kind of understanding or lack of understanding that makes America, uh, which is, even though we have a lot of issues, I, I believe is the best country in the entire world. We are a democratic republic. We are relatively new where history is concerned. I mean, we're only 260 years old approximately. And so uh, what we have done, though, is we go into ancient countries like we did in Afghanistan and Iraq with the mindset, here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn them into a democratic republic just like us and give the people freedom. Well, that's all fine, well, and good, but when you have a culture that is thousands of years old and the culture is based on a mindset, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and I do not forget evil that you impose upon me. I don't care if it was yesterday, last week, last month, or 5,000 years ago. I do not forget it. And so what we do is we try and impose our Western mindset in that type of culture, and it doesn't work. Now, people enjoy it for a period of time because, you know, they like freedom. But what often happens is, they revert back to what they know and what they're comfortable, so therefore it doesn't exist for a long period of time. Are you, are, are you listening to me? Okay. So what we have done is we've done the same thing where the Bible is concerned. We've taken, in particular, the Old Testament, and we've tried to westernize it. And so in our translations and our understanding and interpretation of the Scripture, we act like Genesis was 150 years ago, okay? No, Genesis was 6,000 years ago. And so, it, and the people that we got that from, uh, their culture and mindset is totally different than ours is. Do you understand? Okay, all right. Now, let's go further into this. Here we go. The Hebrews had modes of speech in idiomatic language that is different from our own, okay? They didn't talk like we do. You know, the characters in the Bible did not talk like we do. They didn't necessarily act like we do. There are certain characteristics about the Hebrew language that are unique to the Hebrew language. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament, there are going to be some things that you're not going to be able to reconcile unless you dive into the culture 
and the language. Okay? So that being said, our Western Bible translators quite often engaged in literal translation of the Scriptures. Now, as I was studying this, how many of you have taken Spanish before in school or French maybe? Okay? Or maybe, uh, you know, Latin was being taught when I was in high school. I don't know if they still teach it or not. But the Latin languages is Latin really and a little bit of Greek, but Latin mostly is where our English language came from, the origination of it. And Spanish and French are the same way. That's why you will find in, uh, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with Spanish at all, there are some Spanish words that sound just like our English words. Some don't, a lot don't. Even French words that sound like our English words. It's because of their origination in the Latin language. So what, what people did and what translators have done is the, like they, they, you can, sometimes you can, or most of the time really, you can take a Spanish sentence and translate it word for word and break it into English and it means the same thing. Hebrew, you cannot do that. And what translators did sometimes is they tried to take the Hebrew language and make it work that way in their translating, all right? And it, and it doesn't equate. And so what you have to do is you have to have a better understanding of the language. So here, let me give you some more. They did not necessarily, they, the translators, did not necessarily interpret the Hebrew, Oriental, Eastern idioms in the language. And I'm going to talk more about what that is in just a second. Okay? I'm not boring you, am I? Okay. Track with me. I'm going somewhere with this, and it's going to help you. All right? Now, here's the, the last thing I want you to say. Wait a minute. There are no contradictions or errors in the Bible. The Bible is infallible. It is error-free. So there are no contradictions or errors in the Bible. There's only a failure to thoroughly examine and understand the language of the Bible. Let me give you a, a, another example. You know, one thing that uh, has been difficult for archaeologists, particularly that go and, and do digs and things like that in Egypt is because anybody ever heard of hieroglyphics and the language that the Egyptians communicated in is a perfect example of what I'm talking about because you cannot take it word for word and translate it into English. You have to have some basic understanding of what the Egyptian was trying to communicate. Not only that, it, not just a literal breakdown of what the word means, you have to understand what the intent was behind what was being communicated. That's what idiomatic means. It means that you have to have not only a, an understanding of, say, the Hebrew alphabet and how it relates to our English alphabet, you have to understand some intent behind what was being said, all right? And then lastly, the original writers of Scripture did not view certain statements in Scripture the way that we do today. Okay, now you're going to understand this more as we progress. Now, um, Elias Rendell in 1853 said this, and I, and I like this, and I'll break this down. He said, the Hebrews and indeed the Orientalists, meaning the Middle Eastern and Far Eastern languages, often use verbs metonymically with respect to those who are not themselves the author of any action but who afford occasion of performing it by not performing it. This is, let me break this down because that's 1853 language. What, what he is saying is this, the Hebrews often used verbs metonymically, and I'm going to tell you what that means in just a second, meaning that the person who was being spoken about did not actually do the language, but took the credit for it or do the, the action, but it was placed on that person, all right? So again, the Hebrews often used verbs with respect to those who are not themselves the authors of any action, all right? And, and, and what I'm talking about in specific is God, 
In the Hebrew language, there were verbs that were used that were metonyms, and God, the action was attributed to God, but God was not the author of the action. Okay, does that make sense to you? All right, so what's a metonym? I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to talk to you about that. Okay, so again, what we have to do is we've got to take the time to understand the Bible language, and I'm not implying that you have to become a Hebrew scholar, but there are some basic things that you need to understand so that you don't throw out the Old Testament. So what we have to do is we have to understand certain phrases, certain idioms, and we must understand how they differ from our culture and language and expressions. So what is a, a metonymy? Metom, what's a metonym? All right. All right, here we go. It is a word, name, or expression that's used as a substitute for something else with which it is closely associated. And I used some examples there because these were given in the book, and I liked it. So, you know, in our modern vernacular, if I say suit, you often attribute that to someone who's in a corporate environment, do you not? I know uh, talking with, with Matt back there, he, he retired from NASA, and there were uh, civil service employees, and then there were military people who worked at NASA, and the Air Force people were referred to as what, Matt? Blue suits, okay? Now, what you did is you used a word, and it was a metonym to refer to something close to it. All right, now, if I say, I'm going to the track this afternoon, you know, if you, we don't have it around here, but if you were in Florida or maybe California or some other place where they did racehorses and you could gamble and bet on racehorses, if I said, I'm going to the track this afternoon. What does that mean to you? He's going to the racehorses or horse races so he can gamble, okay? All right? And then if I say this, um, if I use the phrase Washington or I say D.C., what does that mean to you? That's where the seat of our federal government is located. That's a metonym. So I don't have to say... I'm going to the place that is the basis and the location for the functionality of our federal government system. No, I can just say I'm going to D.C., and you know exactly what that means, okay? Why? Because that's a metonym that we use in our modern language. So, in other words, the Hebrew was fond of using a causative verb for a permissive verb, in the language. Another scholar stated that in the style of Scripture, God is often said to do what he only permits to be done. All right, so now that brings us to the crux of our uh, sermon for today. Now, this wasn't a language lesson. I just had to say those things to begin to lay some groundwork. So what we have to do is we have to understand and have knowledge of the fact, this right here that I just gave you, it, because if you don't understand that, it will cause your understanding of God to be tainted or false. That's why in modern church doctrine, things are attributed to God that God had nothing to do with. Okay? Are you tracking with me? All right. So failure to understand this has allowed Satan to deceive Christians into accepting sin, sickness, poverty, disaster, and failure as coming from the hand of a loving God that predestined all those things for us. Now, I'm not going to even attempt to get into Calvinism and Arminianism and all those types of isms that came up as the church has grown over the last 2,000 years Calvinism basically is the line of thinking that says anything that happens, happens because God instigates it. He, he causes it to happen. So, you know, Calvinists are the ones that believe that, that God knows everybody who's going to get saved. And so if you weren't predestined to get saved, you're not going to get saved. And that's just not true. The Bible says 
uh, you know, if you look in the New Testament, the Bible says God is not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So that just flies in the face of this predestination doctrine that Calvinist submitted. So here's what we want to do today. We want to understand what is the difference between this permissive sense and the causative sense, all right? So let's look at this. What is the permissive sense? Write this down, please. God's permission should never be confused with commission. God's permission should never be confused with his commission. Now, I want to say this to you. God created man, we mentioned this earlier, with the will to choose and make decisions for his own life. And there's a couple of things you need to understand about God. Number one, God will never, ever, ever override your free choice. He'll let you go to hell if that's what you want to do. It's sad if you do, but he'll let you go to hell if that's what you're bent on doing because he respects your right to be able to make that decision. Here's the other thing God will not do. He will never allow the devil to override your will. Now, the devil can trick and coerce and deceive and do all that kind of stuff, but he has to do all of that to get you to make a choice. God moves in the heart of people in order to get them to choose him. Let me show you a verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, in the easy-to-read version. Why is it called the easy-to-read version? Do anybody remember? Because it's easy to read. That's right. All right, here's 3019, Deuteronomy 3019. He says, today I am giving you a choice of two ways. We're at a fork. Here's the two ways. And he said, I ask heaven and earth to be witnesses of your choice. You can choose life or death. The first choice will bring a blessing. The other choice will bring a curse. So in case you're not sure which one to choose, I added that. God said, so choose life, then you and your children will live. So there is a choice that you and I make or choices that you and I make that either facilitate life or death, blessing or curses in our lives. Now, something else you need to understand is that because of Adam's sin, the curse of sin is already in the earth. Paul calls it in Romans chapter 8, the law of sin and death. He also says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. The payment that sin will give you is death, is what that verse means. Okay? Now, so God's permission should never be confused with commission. So let me give you an example. God permits people to construct and build bars and nightclubs and strip clubs and all that type of thing. But let me ask you a question. Is he behind that? No, of course not. So he does not commission it. He does not commit it. All right? He permits people to steal and kill. But he doesn't commission people to steal and kill and commit murder. All right? He certainly doesn't commit or commission any of those actions, so therefore there is a vast difference between permission and commission. So the question then comes, well, does God permit it? Yes, he does, because he respects the right of every human being to be able to make choices. All right? So God respects the freedom of choice that he created people with. God will permit a person to sin without restraint when there is no integrity of their heart. You know, you get somebody like an Adolf Hitler that uh, just is a, I mean, and of course in our modern times, you know, somebody like Osama bin Laden who is just inherently evil. 
He got to that place because he began to make choices and did God commit or commission those choices and commission those people to do the horrible things that they did? Of course not. But he permitted it because he allows man to make free will decisions. All right? So, let's talk about what the permissive will of God is. Here we go. The permissive sense is God allowing circumstances that he would normally protect an individual or a nation from. Now, here's the way God moved with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He would give them instructions, and he would say, okay, if you obey my instructions, then I will surround you, I will protect you, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will protect you from evil and, and things that are in this world that would like to bring destruction into your life. That's my paraphrasation, but that's what he said. But what happened is, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, and I'm not picking on them because we have a tendency to be just like them, they were inherently disobedient. And so what happened is, as they became disobedient, more and more and more, God had to back away from them, take his hand of protection off of them, and let them experience the things that were in the earth bent on their destruction to begin with. But in the Old Testament, it was often attributed, not in the causative sense, but in the permissive sense, but in the translation, it got translated as if it was God behind the things that were happening to the children of Israel. Okay, are, are you tracking with me? So the permissive sense is God allowing circumstances that he would normally protect an individual or a nation from. So, for instance, this usually happens when an individual refuses to repent from sin and, and continues in disobedience. This leaves God with no choice but to remove his protection from them. God will let a person suffer from the inevitable consequences of their sin, not because he's punishing them, but listen to me carefully, because the punishment for sin is contained within the sin itself, the seed of sin. All right, I'm not trying to be too technical, but you've got to understand this. Let me say it to you this way. In other words, God will allow you to reap what you have sown. But if you repent, here's the good news. God, who is a God of grace and mercy, will step back in and afford to you his protection. And even if you've made a big old mess, he'll help you so you don't have to experience the full brunt and the effect of your sin. Okay? All right, now, God exercises the permission of sin and circumstances by departing from and forsaking an individual or a nation and allowing whatever forces, both spiritual and physical, that desired to destroy them but could not due to his presence, he lets them have their way. I'm going to use an example, okay? Um, some of the things that we experience in our nation are a particularly in the last 60, 70 years, are a result of us telling God, and I'm talking about saying us as an entire nation, God, we don't want you, we don't need you, we don't need you in our affairs, we don't need you in our schools, we don't need you in our lives, we don't want you. And what God has to do when someone responds to him that way is say, okay, fine, have it your way. All right, let me show you a verse in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 12. It says this, though, and this is Hosea prophesying by the Holy Spirit. He says, though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them, I'll grieve for them to the last man. Yes, look at this, woe to them when I depart from them. 
I'm going to say this to you, and I've said this before. The worst thing that God could ever do to a human being is leave you alone. And he'll let you get to that point if that's what you want, okay? So what I'm saying to you is a lot of the negative circumstances that we experience in our nation is a harvest that we're reaping because of seed that we have sown. Now, thank God, what, what the Lord says is, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and, see, and repent and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. In other words, if you open the door back up and invite me to come in, I will come back in. All right? Now, so when things happen in our lives, all right, um, you need to understand this. Things that God permits, and I must have left this one out, forgive me, but things that God permits are not his will and his design. Write that down, please. Things that God permits are not his will and his design. What we see is a good God who's been pushed away by his creation because they prefer the temporary pleasures of sin more than a gracious God who wants to protect them from sin's destructive power. So what are the answers to these things? Okay, so how do we, how do we move forward? So if I understand that when I read in the Old Testament, and I'm going to say this to you, and I started to include this, but I'm just going to mention it passing. In the Old Testament, let me give you a great example. In the book of Exodus, where we know uh, it was never God's plan, or let me say it to you this way, his desire to send those plagues on the Egyptians. He didn't want that to happen. Now, did he know it was going to happen? Yes, he's God. He knows everything. But he didn't want that to happen. His desire would have been for Pharaoh to let the people go when Moses and Aaron appeared to him the first time. But it took some convincing. And so what God had to do is perform miracle after miracle after miracle and, and, and bring the people or bring the Egyptians to a place where they were willing to let the people go. Now, I want to say this to you. We have seen, of course, in the Ten Commandments, the movie and all of that, uh, did God kill the firstborn children of Egypt? No, he did not. Okay? What he did is he backed away and let death come upon the people. And they experience the full brunt of their choices. Okay? But God is not in the firstborn killing business. <laughs> but it says, it sure looks like that in the Bible. Yeah, because we've interpreted that without understanding the things that we talked about earlier. Did God permit it? Yes. Did God commit it? No. Okay? Are you still here? You... You still like me? Okay. So how do we work through this? How do we process this? Well, here we go. There's a gentleman who is a great theologian that was around in the early part of the 20th century, and his name is R.A. Torrey, and he said this, study your Bible comparatively. That is, compare Scripture with Scripture. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Wherever you find a difficult passage in the Bible, there's always some passage elsewhere that explains its meaning. Okay, and I'm going I'm to show you this in just a second. All right? So here's what God's heart desire is. God wants us to know and understand specific things about his character. He wants us to know that he is a loving, kind, fair in judgment and I'm going to add this, just God who would never do us wrong. Never. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, he does all things right. Okay? All right, so 
So quickly as we wrap this up, how do I interpret those things in the Old Testament? And, and I, you know, I don't expect you to have the resources that I have that I've accumulated over the last 40 years of Bible study. You know, some of you may have them. You know, I've got concordances that are this thick. I've got dictionaries that are this thick. I'm talking about Hebrew and Greek dictionaries. So I'm not saying you have to have those type of resources. If you'll follow what I just told you about Bible interpretation, it will help you. So write this down, please. All right, here's, here's a, a helpful Bible tip in, in, in Bible interpretation, okay? When you interpret the Scripture, you always use the greatest light that you have to bring light on that particular subject. Okay, if this isn't... I, I, as I was putting this together yesterday, I, I, you know, you ever done something and you were like, oh, I need to change that, and then you realize you got four things you got to change once it's changed? Okay, so if I didn't have this in the exact order, forgive me, all right? But I, the way it's on your notes is the way I wanted it, all right? So let me get, give you this. Maybe this is the first next blank. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. If you'll remember that, I'm telling you, it'll serve you well. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. So here's what I want to say to you. You never interpret the New Testament using the Old Testament as a guide. You interpret the Old Testament using the New Testament as your guide. Okay, does that make sense to you? All right. St. Augustine, who was a, a, a great theologian that lived in the 3rd century, he, he actually half of the 3rd century and died halfway through the 4th century, he said this, and I really, really like it. He said, the new is in the old contained, the old is by the new explained. Kind of catchy, but I like it. He said, the new is in the old contained. In other words, what you need to look for, and this will help you even study in the book of Revelation. You know, the Revelation <laughs> at the end of the, the Bible is not the revelation of the boogeyman. It's not about the Antichrist. If you read the first few verses of the book of Revelation, it says this. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what that tells you is interpret the book of Revelation looking for Jesus, not the Antichrist, not the boogeyman, not the bad things that are going to happen. Look for Jesus. And if you will search the Old Testament looking for Jesus, that'll serve you a great deal in study. All right, so when you look and uh, what this is actually saying is that what we see happen in the New Testament was concealed in the Old Testament. Are, are you understanding? So you can find out about, you know, listen, I, this is so cool to me. In the 22nd Psalm, David wrote by the Spirit of God how Jesus was going to be crucified and how he was going to die 2,000 years before crucifixion was ever invented. That's what that means. Okay, so the New Testament is in the Old Testament contained, but the old is by the new explained. All right, so let me show you a great interpretation or how you look at this. So if you find in the Old Testament where it says and implies in our translations, English translations, that God killed so-and-so. Oh, my goodness. He what? He killed what? Okay, so that's a problem because Pastor Brad told me at church that God's not a killer. Okay, so what you have to do is this. Go over to, to a verse that I included in your notes, John 10, 10. Now, do you believe Jesus always correctly interpreted the, will, the Word of God? Yeah, He is the Word, made flesh, okay? Did He accurately and completely walk out the will of God? Okay, so what we've learned from that and in our previous lessons is this. Jesus is the perfect example of, of looking at and discovering the character of God, right? Okay, you agree with that? Okay, so when Jesus says something like, the thief does not come 
except to steal, kill, and destroy. I, and in so saying I, he implies God and I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So is there anywhere in this verse where it says Jesus, God, or the Holy Spirit is behind killing people? Where he gets mad at people and just, just gets them. No. So what do you do? You have to take this greater revelation from this verse and interpret the Old Testament through it. So there must be something. When I see in the Old Testament, God killed so-and-so. But I know Jesus said, God's not a killer. So where's the disconnect? The disconnect must be in the translation of the old. Do you see that? That's what I'm trying to get you to see. And so what I, the whole point of this sermon today was for this, to set you up so that as you study the Old Testament, you will never fall for the deception that the enemy wants to introduce to people that God steals, kills, and destroys. Because he doesn't. So that all being said, here's the last thing I want to say to you, and that is this. Sickness, disease, and death has never come from God and never will. Let me say that again. Sickness, disease, and death has never come from God and never will. I'm going to say it one more time. Sickness, disease, and death has never come from God and never will. The Bible says, Jesus said, he prayed this in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think there's any cancer in heaven, do you? There's nobody dying there's no stealing, there's no lying, there's no, none of that kind of stuff going on in heaven. So Jesus prayed, Lord, let what's going on in heaven happen here. Okay? So there is no sickness in heaven, never has been any sickness in heaven. Sickness is, is a result of Adam's sin that was introduced into the earth when he said it's part of the curse and here's the good news. You have been delivered from that by the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, I'm saying all of this to say, and, and as I told you early on, I don't care how long this series lasts. I want people to get healed. I want people to be able to receive their healing. So, we're going to take, if, if I have to chip away at this for months. I don't care because I'm going to pull every obstacle out of the way. I'm going to bring every truth from the word of God to you to show you that God is not behind your sickness. He's not behind the disease. He is for your healing. The price has already been paid for your healing. All we have to do is receive it by faith and walk in it like we do our salvation. Amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.